0: hear the word of the Lord. Now listen to another story. A certain landowner planted a vineyard, built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crops but the farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. So the landowner sent a larger group of his servants to collect for him, but the results were the same. Finally, the owner sent his son, thinking, surely they will respect my son. But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes the heir of this, of this estate. Come on, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard, and murdered him. When the owners of the vineyard returns, Jesus asked, "What do you think he will do to those farmers?" The religious leaders replied, "He will put the wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest." Jesus said, "I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit." This is the word of the Lord.:
1: Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Community Church. Normally, uh, we have a nursery and kids classes up through fifth grade on the other side of the building. Uh, and we also have something called Sunday Morning Students. It's a class for students from sixth through twelfth grade. But today, it's All Together Sunday, something we do a few times a year, where we're all in here together, multi-generational worship. Uh, kids, when you came in, we handed you a two-sided activity sheet, which uh, will follow along with today's lesson. Uh, Those of you who are older than uh, that, uh, the older uh, kids and, and adults, we handed you a bulletin when you walked in. On the inside, it has today's scripture, as well as some discussion questions. And then on the back, there's a list of events and opportunities that we hope you'll consider being a part of. We also handed you an insert. It's a word search puzzle, which will make sense after this sermon is over. Now, today's sermon, today's parable that we just heard is what we call a parable of judgment. So if this is your first time here, you're probably thinking, boy, did I pick the wrong Sunday to visit that church. Uh, That's why I left the church in the first place. Judgment, 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 fire and brimstone all the time. And I get it. Nobody likes being judged. I mean, nobody, but nobody likes being judged. (laughs) Uh, Except for Angela from the office. Uh, But she said all kinds of crazy things, so I I think we can discount her opinion. Nobody likes being judged. But listen, no one judges me more harshly or more often than me, and I bet you're the same way. You probably even imagine others are judging you when they're not. We all hear these voices inside of our head, or voices from outside. Some of us spend a lot of money on self-help books or self-medication to try to dull these voices in our head, but it just doesn't work. And, And deep down, we think that at least some of the time, the judgment against us is true. And so we say things like, hey, I'm not perfect, but I'm not perfect, but I pay my taxes. I'm not perfect, but you should see my neighbor or my coworker. I'm way better than them. You don't know what this guy did. I'm not perfect, but I'm trying real hard. I'm not perfect, but I obey all the laws of the land except for the speeding laws, but who, who does that? So we all recognize that there is this standard called perfection, and we all recognize that no matter how hard we try, we just can't quite measure up to perfection. And the problem is it only takes one minute In an entire lifetime of not being perfect, one moment of distraction, of letting your guard down, one moment of indiscretion to wreck a relationship, to ruin a reputation, or even to end a life. And the problem is even worse for those of us who do believe that the soul lives on after death to face a perfect God in our own day of judgment and give an accounting of our lives. But what if God's word has something to say about this something positive, something helpful, something that is good news? What if we can begin to grasp it in today's parable? Some of Jesus' stories are hard to understand, but some like this one are pretty easy. If you've been going to church for any length of time, probably as we were hearing that parable, you were starting to make the connections. And if, if not, I'll put it on the screen. It's pretty simple. It goes something like this. So God is the vineyard owner, Old Testament heroes, the prophets, they were his servants, the ones that were getting beat up and, and murdered. Jesus is the son that he finally sends that gets murdered, the religious leaders, uh, we're the wicked tenants. God judged them for rejecting Jesus. And then we Christians are this new nation that he said all these great things about. We're the ones that inherit the vineyard. We're the good guys. Yay, let's go home. Not so fast. And it's not just that we figured it out all these centuries later with all of our seminaries and things like that. The people Jesus was talking to knew exactly what he meant. In verse 45, it says, when the leading priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. So how is this relevant to us? The characters in this parable do incredibly stupid things. They, they somehow think that they're, they're going to get away with this. You would never do something like that, right? Right? only let's think about this for a minute. So kids here in the room, has, has anything like this ever happened? Mom says, clean your room. Now, this is the third time she's told you to clean your room. So this time she says, I'm setting the timer. If, if this room is not clean, when the timer goes off, you're in big trouble. And you know she means business because this situation has played out before. And you fully mean to go in your room and clean it so that you do not get in trouble and you go in your room and there's all your toys and books and stuff like that and i don't know something happens you get distracted and the next thing you know the timer goes off the room is not clean sojourn students uh, particularly those of you who have a driver's license dad says hey you can go out with your friends but this time be back by the curfew i'm taking the car keys last chance So you go out with your friends and and you fully intend to obey dad. At the start of the evening, you say, hey, look, guys, everyone help me keep track of time because I have to have this car back by my curfew. He's going to take the keys. And somehow, at the end of the night, curfew comes and you're still not home. College students, professor says at the start of the semester, hey, this essay is 75% of your grade. I'm giving you the semester to work on it. And I'm telling you now, don't bother filing for an extension. If you miss the deadline, that's it. And you have the whole semester. But what are you doing the night before it's due? Writing the whole thing. Get a little bit older. You know you shouldn't take on debt. You know you should stay out of debt. You know you should stay away from MasterCard and Visa and Discover and the Home Depot card and all these cards. And yet there you are month after month putting things on the cards. Now it's gotten to the point where you're thinking, if if I don't do something pretty soon, I'm not even going to be able to afford the minimum monthly payment on this debt. And yet there you are putting more stuff on the cards. You get a little bit older and your spouse and your doctors say, if you don't stop eating this way, if you don't stop drinking this, if you don't stop smoking this, you're going to shorten your life. You're going to be in and out of hospitals. You're going to have all these medications. It's going to be a horrible experience and you're going to die before your time. And you know they're right you've read the literature, you've seen how this has played out in other people's lives that you know, but you're still eating the stuff, you're still smoking the stuff, you're still drinking the stuff. Some of you are even a little bit older. Death is not some abstract concept for you because your parents are long gone, your grandparents are long gone, many of your, your own acquaintances, the people that you work with, people that you went to school with have passed away, and you know you have less days in front of you than the days behind you. And you are speeding towards your own personal judgment day with unresolved conflict in your heart. Someone that you won't forgive. Someone that you won't ask the forgiveness of. Some of you are even planning on using your will as one final way to get back at someone. Yeah, we're smarter than the people in today's parable. But it's even worse than that. Because we all want to do things our own way, right? Right? Uh, Last week, uh, my teenage son Connor and I took my little girls, uh, Michaela and Lidiana, to a park near our house. It's a few blocks away. We're playing in the park. And then we decided to go back home a, a little bit different way than we normally go. It's actually a little bit shorter. So we're walking back this different way. Lidiana has never gone this way before, and she is having none of it. She's convinced that I'm getting us lost, that I don't know how to get home. She's telling me, and I'm, and I'm trying to tell her this is the way. And, and finally, I say, Lidiana, listen, trust me. This is the way home. And in her three-year-old voice, she looks up and she says, no, you trust me because she knows the way, right? And, and being a preacher, for good or for bad, I immediately think, sermon illustration. It writes itself, because the, the difference in wisdom between me and my three-year-old daughter is nowhere near the difference in wisdom between Almighty God and me. And yet here I am, so much of my life, saying, God, I got this. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, the ones that Jesus was telling this parable to, that's how they thought. They got this. We're the ones working this vineyard. Nobody tells us what to do. That's why Jesus told them this parable in the first place. In verse 23, it says, When Jesus returned to the temple and began teaching, the leading priests and elders came up to him. They demanded, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the right? Sometimes that reminds me of me. I've got good old American self reliance. I take care of my business. Don't mess with my plans, God. Thank you for all the good gifts. I can take it from here, though. I bet that describes you at least some of the time as well. Now, you might say, okay, I, I, I get where you're going at. I agree with a lot of that. But just like the tenants killed the son in this story, The religious leaders of Jesus' day, the ones he was telling the story to, they really did kill Jesus. As a matter of fact, they did just what he said that they would do a few days after he told the story. This parable came in the last week of his life between, uh, between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. They really did kill him. And you say, I wouldn't kill anyone. Well, I hope not. But there were a lot of good citizens at Jesus' trial shouting, Crucify him. Now, Now, for a second, put out of your head that it's Jesus and you love Jesus. Think about this. They had rationalized, here is a prisoner. They're asking him to be executed by the government because he's talking about this kingdom and he's gonna be the king. And here's the Romans, this imperial force that could sweep in at any time and can kill all of them and can kill their children and can destroy the temple and can change everything, can wipe them off the mat. And here's this prisoner that's saying he's got this kingdom and he's, he's going to establish this kingdom. Now, would you possibly go along with this? Like, hey, let's, let's ask the government to execute this prisoner who might get my family and, and me killed. Could you see yourself going along with something like that? I could. So... What is the thing that makes us different then? What makes us different than the wicked tenants in this parable? Why is Jesus so confident that the kingdom of God will be given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit? And when he uses this word nation, uh, this doesn't mean a specific nation with borders like America or Mexico. When the New Testament writers, when Jesus used this word, uh, they are referring to people from, from every place, from all regions of the world, from every language, from every race, the people that follow Jesus. They make up this this new nation. In the context of this parable, it means specifically they are the people who produce the proper fruit. Now, this is a big deal because if there's no difference in us, then we're not this new nation that Jesus is talking about, and we have a big problem, and it won't matter. If you clean your room and do your homework and bring the car back on time and get out of debt and make up with your sister Sue that you've been feuding with for 30 years and eat your oat bran, we've got a problem. What's the difference? Is it hard work? You can, you can always tell who the Christians are because they are the hardest workers at every job, at every task. All Christians rise to the top of their professions. All CEOs are Christians because they worked harder than anyone else. Is that true? No. Maybe it's just, it's talent. I mean, we all know the best rock and roll bands are all CCM artists, right? No. Maybe we need some clues. Jesus told quite a few other parables, and each each parable that he tells gives another clue as to what the kingdom of God is going to be like, and who's going to be in it, and what are those people like. So let's pop into another one, then we'll come back to the the wicked tenants. You're kind of getting two for the price of one today. He told a parable that we call the parable of the great feast. Uh, and in this parable, there's this rich guy and he throws this big feast, this big party, and he goes to his servant and he says, I want you to invite the best and the the brightest to this party that I'm throwing. And so the servant goes out and he tries to invite all these uh, rich people and beautiful people and talented people. And one by one, they all say no. And so then he goes back to the, to the rich guy and he says, well, you know, this one guy, he... Uh, He said he wants to to binge watch the the new episode of Stranger Things that day, so he can't make it. And this other guy, he's got a new Xbox game and he can't make it. So one by one, sorry, they, they all said no. And so then we pick up the story in Luke 14. The servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, there is still room for more. So his master said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house may be full. This hardly seems like the Marines looking for a few good men and women. He's saying, I'll take anybody. Now imagine, imagine that Jesus, he he tells you, I want to throw this big party for all New Albany. I want you to go out and I want you to invite everyone. I want you to go to the Section 8 housing. I want you to go to the hospital. I want you to go to the rehab centers. I want you to go to the Salvation Army on the white flag nights where all the homeless gather to get in out of the cold. I want you to go to all these places. Go everywhere you can think of. Round them all up. Bring them to my party. And you say, Jesus, I did that. You still have plenty of room. And he says, All right, I want you to go everywhere. I want you to go to Richo's. I want you to go to the exchange. I want you to go to the YMCA. Go to the ballparks. Go to the suburbs. Go midtown, uptown, downtown. Go everywhere. Go to all the bars. And you say, Jesus, the bars? And he says, All the bars. And you say, Even the G-A-Y bar? And he says, read my lips, all the bars. Go everywhere. Tell everybody I'm throwing a party. It's going to last forever. If you're there, you'll last forever. It's going to be great. You think you know what the good life is. You have no idea how good the good life can be until you come to my party. Please come. But Jesus knew that some of his people seem a little bit dense about story, and metaphor, and things like that. There's a lot of left-brained people in the kingdom of God. There's probably a lot of left-brained people in the room. You're like, just tell it to me plain, all right? So Jesus, after he rose from the grave, he ascended into heaven, and he spoke to a young preacher named Paul, and he said, Paul, I want you to go, and I want you to speak to all those left-brained folks in my family. I want you to speak and write to all these people, and just tell it to them plainly. So Paul writes this letter to Christians. We call it Ephesians, and here's Paul. Saying what Jesus has been getting at in these stories. He says, It is only by God's grace you have been saved, and you can't take credit for it. It is the gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Now, kids in the room, you studied this very verse last week. This is my daughter Lidiana's coloring sheet. It says, Main point Paul wrote that we are saved through Jesus alone. So, what makes us better than the wicked tenants in today's parable? Well, that's the wrong question. What makes us different is we know we're not better. We know that we need Jesus, we recognize our need of him and we accept his grace. We remember the price he paid on the cross for all of our sin, all of the things that make us just as bad as the wicked tenants in today's parable. When we experience this grace, it's like we've been given a new pair of glasses and we can see clearly for the first time. We can't do it on our own. It turns out life with God really is better than life without him. God's grace is everything we need and more than we can imagine. So we thank him and we trust him. And it's so liberating not to be under judgment any longer. When those voices, even my own in my head, say all these bad things about me, some of them true, some of them untrue, doesn't matter anymore. Jesus knows everything about me and he still invited me to the party. He still invited me to the kingdom as his very own family. But how can we feel this? How can we experience this day in and day out? Most of you in this room would say, look, I am a Christian. I put my trust in Jesus. I got baptized. I became a member. I come here every Sunday. But sometimes I just don't feel this grace. How can we make this connection between this amazing grace and every aspect of our lives, home, school, work, relationships, play, but we cultivate the grace that God has given us. Remember, we're like grape growers in a vineyard. To cultivate grace is to show grace to others, even when they don't deserve it, even when they're mean to us. When we do this, three things happen. So if you're a note taker, write these three things down, or I'll put these on the screen. You can take a photo. We'll go one by one. First thing is it helps us learn to trust Jesus. Last Sunday, Pastor Jonah reminded us, Jesus said, someone smites you, someone hits you, turn the other cheek. Now, there's nothing in me that wants to do that. That doesn't make any sense to me. For me to do that, for me to show grace in that situation, I have to say, Jesus, I need your help. I know that's what you said. It doesn't make sense to me, but I trust you. Somehow it's gonna work out best. It's what you have in your plan. Number two, it helps us feel and understand the grace God has shown us. When someone is annoying me and I, and I need to show grace to them, I think about how one of the major themes of my life has been God saying, trust me, this is a way, and me saying, no, you trust me. That's what I do all the time. God has shown me so much grace and he continues to show me so much grace. Perhaps I can show others. Number three, we show others what God is like so they'll begin to trust him too. And that feels amazing. The pressure is off. God guarantees he's going to use us to grow this fruit. We're working hard. We're using our talents, not out of desperation, but out of joy. Envision a future where you're showing grace everywhere you go, not to earn God's favor, but because you are always in his favor. What might this city look like with several hundred residents who simply radiate grace everywhere they go? I get excited thinking about that, but if that seems too big for you, just focus on that one place where you show no grace, that one place in your life that it's really hard, that one person that is really hard to extend grace to. We'll call this your Monday Challenge. I'll put this on the screen. Where's the place I show no grace? Ask God to reveal this to you. Ask God to help you with this place. Share this with your, your spouse or your family, your friends, your community group talk about this. Hold each other accountable to this. Just that one place where you show no grace. Maybe it's when you're driving your car. Maybe it's the grocery store. Maybe it's the gym. Maybe it's. The, the backyard or the front porch in your neighborhood. Maybe it's school or maybe it's just one class. Maybe it's work or maybe it's just one weekly meeting. Where's the place you show no grace? I bet, I bet wherever this place is, I bet whoever the people are that are involved, it's a major source of stress and frustration in your life. And I bet if you will ask God to help you show grace in that place, And if you'll ask God to shower that place with his grace, I bet you'll be glad you did. And I know this because again, he promises that we will produce the proper fruit. Not because we're better, but because we trust Jesus and he does the work in our lives. Where's the place you show no grace? The grace God has shown us is rich beyond measure. And yet he offered it to us for free. But he did so at incredible expense to himself. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread like this one. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Then he took a cup of wine like this one. And he said, just like we pour this wine into the cup, my blood will be poured out for you. Drink this in remembrance of me until I come again. In just a moment, you'll come forward, tearing off a piece of bread and dipping it into either wine or juice as your conscience permits. The cups with wine will have strings of twine tied around them. If you're in the back half of the room, we'll have stations in the back so you can just turn around and go back there. If you need gluten-free communion elements, you'll find them in this far corner over here, my left, your right. Now, I said a few minutes ago that we can feel and celebrate grace by cultivating it. But that's assuming you've accepted it for the first time. If you are not a Christian this morning, I ask that you don't come forward and partake of communion because it wouldn't make sense. It symbolizes something that you haven't even accepted yet. Instead, I urge you to pray at your seat, pray with the Christian that came with you, pray during the week to receive Christ, to accept his invitation to come to the party. And then we can prepare you in the weeks to come to be baptized. And partake of communion with us. In the hardest place, Christ showed the greatest grace. It's a then, now, and forever grace. All you got to do is say yes. Let's pray.